Hey guys, this is Matt. And this is Sean. Welcome to the show. We're meeting at the crossroads of wellness and sales in an attempt to share different mental, physical, and spiritual tactics to attain better results in your life of sales. We're going to experiment, challenge, and discuss what may or may not work for you in hopes to push you to become the best version of yourself. Hope you enjoyed today's show. All right, we are live here with Nate. Nate, how are we doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you both doing? Doing well, right. doing well. Yeah, so guys, today we got uh, Nate Nasrallah with us, who is one of the founders of Fluent and is helping you guys enable your champions to actually sell the deals when you're not in the room, which is pretty common. So, Nate, thanks for joining today. If you want to give us just a little background, uh, who you are and what you do, we'll go from there. Yeah. Um, so I am a three-time sales leader, two-time founder, and there's a lot of crossover between those two things. The reason why I call it out, aside from like a you know resume statistic, is I kind of got into the sales world by route of building products as a founder. Like I, I just love the design and the creativity work in building products. And what I discovered pretty quickly is the process that you go through to discover, you know, there's a sales discipline, discover what a job that a user is trying to get done, what types of roadblocks, kind of obstacles is standing in the way, which leads to a good product. It's a lot of the same methods and disciplines that you use in selling. So kind of my first time around building my first startup, I took over the sales team because I, I love that. And then kind of kept rolling in future companies after that company was um, bought up, build up an enterprise sales team, which is part of the kind of first environment where I started to go deeper on the problem that we're now solving um, at Fluent. So I'll uh, kind of package that all together as I love a good conversation, good, thoughtful questions, some discovery. Um, that's what I live for during the week. Nice. <clears throat> let's, uh, let's, let's start your roots, you know, going yeah. back to the college days, who were you? Like, how'd you get it into, into kind of your career path? Yeah. So the first, the first company that I started working on was actually in college. It was a startup where we actually had a pr uh, pretty sweet entrepreneurship program at University of Illinois. Um, Jimmy John from Jimmy John Sandwiches um, became oh. an advisor to a couple friends who were building up a tea company. They were studying abroad, fell in love with this idea of loose leaf tea, came back to campus and were like, nobody likes tea. It's a weird thing. Like the younger consumer just doesn't go out trying to, you know, brew all different types of sencha and matcha leaves and, you know, so on. So they're like, we got to do something about this. So they started this um, kind of idea called TS to T Company. I started um, helping them build that up. I remember going and talking with professors and being like, hey, so I can't actually take this exam. I'm going to be in New York in a sales meeting trying to pitch this restaurant on our tea. And they were all like pretty cool with it. They worked with me. And so I kind of share that story to say I loved the experience of building the sales program there and tea just wasn't my thing. You know, I love yeah. the, <laughs> I loved kind of the, the, the startup experience, but not tea, but it kind of kicked me onto this more, I guess, entrepreneurial bent very early on. No, that's, 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 uh, we hear that a good bit, I guess, with the, the founding roots of, uh, you know, kind of, kind of starting, starting cutting your teeth and I'm kind of rambling right no, now. No, well, I think, well, I was going to just harp on that. I think it's cool. You know, I graduated high school in 07, college in 11. It's just more and more people talking about their experience growing up, whether it's their roots of 
at a younger age or colleges or high schools actually having legit programs that are just more encouraging on the entrepreneurial spirit Mm -hmm. and having some sort of like incubator. And I think to your point, like being able to approach your, your professors now with certain things like that and they're encouraging versus I feel like, you know, not too long ago is very much like, no, you can't do that. You have to be here at this 8am class. And I think that's, that's when I'm kind of crossing my fingers and hoping that education and that's not just college. I think it's even more important going back to middle school and in high school, trying to figure out what you really like of, do I want to build a company? Do I want to get into sales? And what are the things that come with that? Um, and I am hoping that continues. I've got two kids and, and, and Matt as well, where it's like, I wish I had some of these opportunities, whether it's in college and it's one of those, maybe I did and just didn't seek it out as much. Um, but it's very cool to, to be a part of something like that. And you realize, yeah, like maybe it's not the tea that I cared about. And I was cracking up because yeah. I was rewatching Ted Lasso the other day. And I don't know if either of y'all watched that and he's like, <laughs> yeah. sips the tea and he's like nope still just as bad as i thought like dirty water <laughs> um right. but yeah i had that experience I'm like all right cool now i learned i like this part of it but not the other part of it now your your right. brain's moving in, in in the way of like all right what's next and i'm sure that's what's kind of set you off and what you're getting into there yeah exactly right like it's going to be kind of a cool day when you know i didn't even realize sales as a discipline was like a career field that was available you know, think about the number of colleges that offer a sales major, you know, where you actually get experience and you learn the disciplines of selling. Like I, I've never heard of that before, no. but I think it, it could be a pretty cool environment um, for people to start spending, you know, kind of some time spending some time in early on in their career. Yeah. There's always like our general business administration or sometimes there's some I mean, Auburn had some like entrepreneurial classes, but I think a lot of it just wasn't true in practice. Right. Um, it's mm-hmm. all like you know, reading a book or some, something that made sense 20 years ago. Uh, but being able to just truly encourage, cause at the end of the day, it's the hope of something does go well and you attribute it back again, Jimmy John now going back to the university and then supporting you know, any mm-hmm. college or university or school is going to want the, uh, the same. Um, and I, I was a, a marketing major and a minor in finance and it's like, you know, it was one of those. I thought marketing was the path. It's like, cause there isn't a true sales uh, degree. So I was like, I guess I just do marketing. And then halfway through, I was like, man, I wish I would have just like done general business administration. And you're like, well, I've kind of gone too far. So I guess I'll finish this one up. Um, but I think it's changing or there's just like, there's, a, there's, there's a couple more now. I think uh, yeah. I know locally here, Kennesaw state's got a, a sales program, but hmm. I, back when we were in college, it, it did not exist. And I think, yeah, th- there was like a big stigma with it at least even in my mind, like sales in general is just kind of slimy. And you think like you, you sales car guy, like you don't think it's, it's a, it could be like a, a true career path, but then, you know, SAS started booming and, and it started to become such a relevant thing, but um, things are definitely shifting, you know, back that way. But yeah, I've seen it at a couple, couple schools. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, if the marketers get degree programs and things like that, let's, let's give it to the sellers too. Yeah. So, all right. Tea wasn't your thing. What was next? Yeah. So what was next? I, um, I tried going the consulting route. I was like, you know, I don't know exactly what it is that I want to do, but, um, kind of did the tea thing for a couple of years then was like, okay, um, let me put this finance degree to work. Cause speak of that was my major. Couldn't major in sales or, you know, entrepreneurship wasn't yeah. really available though. The experience was there and worked on some kind of interesting projects. Like I stretched that intellectual curiosity in the role 
where I got to build basically valuation models, big old spreadsheets that took in a bunch of data on some type of R&D project, technology spend to value something in IP litigation. It's pretty interesting, but I wasn't really operating well within kind of the tight, rigid structures of consulting projects and kind of the legal world. So I had been kind of carrying around a sketchbook of different ideas for companies that I might want to create. And I would sneak out on my lunch break and, you know, people at the firm would be like, Nate, you take these like two hour lunches. Um, what's going on? You know? And I was just meeting. So I was living in Chicago at the time and I was kind of meeting other potential like co-founders, pitching them on my idea. Um, you know, startup community is, is pretty small. So the idea that I had, um, was focused on the nonprofit sector, how to help kind of small grassroots organizations raise more money for their programs. Most people don't really realize it, but in the U.S., there are 1.2 million nonprofits who generate $430 billion in private philanthropy every year. And so most people hear nonprofit and they think no profit. Um, but from a kind of market opportunity, one, that's bigger. That's a bigger market than most you know traditional SaaS companies that you read yeah. about are going mm -hmm. after. And it's super underdeveloped from a technology perspective. So I was really kind of interested, fascinated by that space. Previously, had done some work with a nonprofit called LeaderTrex. And so eventually, um, I meet somebody else who was working on an idea to help kind of a similar goal, small nonprofits raise money. I, he was like, hey, my idea is better than yours. You should come build my idea. I was like, you're right. It is way better. <laughs> so it, uh, his name was Brian. We got together, became co-founders, built up a business that we um, exited a couple years later. And uh, so that was kind of my next next step. Um, I guess the two two next steps because that one in consulting was more of like a short-term stepping stone <laughs> yeah. I was I was kind of experimenting with an escape route as soon as I got in there and were, did you always kind of you mentioned I guess it's now one two three ish plus or minus companies that have a core within nonprofit did you grow up with with involvement in nonprofit through through everything anything or was it just kind of like when you started at uh, Leader Tracks, you realized your heart kind of there was something connection there. Like, what was what's kind of the background and connection with the nonprofits, which I love. But you know, how would you get in there? Yeah. So my uh, some kind of uh, quick background. So uh, my mom grew up as a missionary kid in Peru. So she was always working on missions projects. Um, didn't come to the states till she was eighteen. Um, so my my part of my dad's um, side of the family is from Honduras. Um, so one kind of the language and the culture I just always loved. Um, and then two, kind of what I was doing at Leader Tracks, I was living in the Dominican Republic, teaching leadership curriculum to students who would come down to work on different missions projects. And it was kind of a real, real world environment to put to test the curriculum that they were teaching. And so I was yeah. the local guide who could kind of interact with um, the locals, help kind of navigate the projects that we were doing down there. So it was just really hands-on. It was really practical. It was in um, kind of a language and a culture that I love. So that's you know, before really kind of figuring out, okay, how do I, um, how do I figure out like a career path? It was a pretty awesome foundation, very early yeah. in my life. I love that. Cause we, we always just kind of, you know, talk about in the world of sales or SaaS sales, you know, can be motivated by money and, and being successful in your career, but sometimes it's tough. Like, you know, I'm in the world of QA and test automation, right? It's very hard to be mm -hmm. like, yeah, the, what is this doing good for the world and myself? <laughs> and you can always kind of find a way to, to, to connect those dots. But I think when you're working in nonprofits and seeing the fruits of your labor and being involved, like that just takes that, 
that motivation and care to another level. There's still probably a little bit of like, you want to be successful and, and, and grow a business and, you know, make some money at the same time. But I think having that core foundation and that, that love leads to a lot of the things mm-hmm. that we talk about of just your, your mental wellness and, and health and care. Um, having so much connection in nonprofit is, is great. Right. Uh, Cause it's very hard and dependent upon the sector and what you're selling to, to, connect those dots and that's why it can be a big struggle in the world of sales you can make as much money in the world but if you're not very very happy it can it can drag on you right oh yeah that's right i mean a lot of sellers now have heard the phrase process over outcomes you know fall in love with the process fall in love with the work eventually the outcomes will follow and before i had heard that that was kind of the thing that i was living i guess in the nonprofit sector is you meet people who are just there because they love the work even the the work that really sucks and is hard, they just love it. And they wake up for the work because it's never finished. There's never like a kind of an outcome type that you, you know, end the work and it's like, okay, we completed the mission. We, you know, eradicated poverty. Great. Like, you know, let's go find something else to work on. Right. So I would say that going then later into the sales world, like I just really loved the process of engaging with and moving kind of a prospect down through the buying cycle, regardless of how the deal ended or not. Um, I just got a kick out of doing the work. Yeah. We talked to a company called IntroSnap, one of the founders there, and they kind of tie together the world of sales and, and um, nonprofits in the sense that they were trying to, you know, create a mechanism where you could engage with prospects by offering a donation to, you know, a nonprofit or a charity or something like that to try to get, get conversations, trying to connect those dots. I thought that was, it goes back to, again, the foundation piece, like instead of we've all heard the, like, I'm going to send you a $25 gift card to Starbucks or Amazon, or, Mm -hmm. you know, we've used the, like, we're going to send you Nike shoes. And a lot of times it's like, yeah, I'll take the call to get the shoes or whatnot. But when you're Mm -hmm. starting in on the foundation of trust and care, and again, putting it in the, in their hands to actually make that decision, it just starts to having connection that obviously with some of the stuff that you're doing now, like building a champion and you're not going to be able to build a champion unless that person and you both agree and see eye to eye. And when, um, helping them move through, uh, if you don't have that trust, it it can be hard, right? I'm sure that's a lot of the stuff that you're, you're focused on now. Well, that was kind of tying the two together. So before leaving the nonprofit sector, I kind of uh, eventually went into selling into Fortune 500 innovation teams, people, um, large companies who are trying to roll out new types of product lines, business lines. The kind of bridge there was that, so in the nonprofit sector, some of the different types of deals that I I was working on, highly complex deals where you would have a government agency a corporation, their um, kind of philanthropic arm, and then other foundations, think like the Bill and Melinda Gates foundations, all coming Mm -hmm. together to fund one project that was run through our software. And so you have all of these different stakeholders from completely separate organizations with their own strategic plans that we would have to align. And pretty quickly, what I came to found out is that decisions were never made when I was around. I was never (laughs) in the room for the most critical conversations. And so Selling became about enabling somebody else to sell when I couldn't yep. be there, teaching them how to message the project and its impact. <clears throat> and that was kind of the way that I just came to see selling at a high or a complex level, which only then kind of carried through then moving back into selling to kind of Fortune 500 type yeah. companies. It was the same type idea for every one conversation that I would have with the buying team. 
they would be meeting internally without me there and having all these other communications that were happening. So to your point around building up a champion, that was kind of where this, I guess, shift in my thinking or shift in my perspective came from is traditionally most people see the sales rep is the one who is closing the deal. We think about the sales rep and the sales meeting. In my view, pretty quickly kind of shifted to say, well, no, it's actually it's the <laughs> champion that's in the deal. They're the one who's closing the deal. I'm just enabling them to align everybody, get them on the same page, excited so that this deal can close. Yeah, it seems like sales is becoming much more project management than actual, you know, sales itself and, and closing. Like to, to your point, you know, you're, the buyers are coming in much more educated than they were before. You know, they really try to kind of cut out the sales motion as much as they can. And then when it comes to actually selling it, it's, it's these huge buying committees now. And it's, it's not just you. I mean, unless you're, I guess you're in transactional sales, but the complex enterprise sale is a completely different beast than, you know, closing people on $100 insurance policies or something, sitting face-to-face at a table with them. Oh, yeah. And there's a, there's a soft spot. Um, in my heart for more of the outbound driven enterprise sale where you don't even have a buying team ready who's looking to evaluate a product. You're trying to just get them to pay attention to a problem and say, hey, there's yeah. there's something that's worth doing here. This is something that you can't leave unaddressed so that they're even willing to go into that more project management phase of the sale, if you will. How do we buy this? As opposed to kind of the first more kind of creative element of the outbound enterprise sale is like, why should we even do something about this in the first place? Can we get people to care enough across the, the enterprise? And then, all right, now we're talking. Now we can kind of go through the evaluation steps. Yeah, especially the earlier stage companies. It is tough. A lot of times it's, that's why I think the BDRs are falling under marketing now because it's just more like, hey, 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 pay attention to us. We're, we exist, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of just problem evangelism saying like, look, this is worth paying attention to, um, especially yeah. as a yeah, very early company, maybe playing in a in a new space. It's hard. It's a it's a hard job. Uh, enterprise BDR at a small, small startup. Whew. It's yeah. a hard job description. Very, very hard. You got to stay motivated. You got to learn. You got to depend upon who you're paired up with that can make it easier or harder, right? You've got the AEs that are there and wanting to coach and train. And then you have the ones that are just, uh, you're not giving me any value. I'm not going to mm-hmm. invest that time. Or if I invest all this time and make you good, then you're not going to be a BDR in six months because you're going to hopefully get promoted. Yeah. Um, so I think that's obviously a tough role, but kind of going back to some of the other things, right? As you're alluding to, you know, the buying process on our side is hard, but I'm seeing more and more that, them on the internal side for even in enterprise sales, the amount of levels of approvals that people have to go through. And again, committees and security boards, like there's so much more process that then two, even two years ago, I think that just comes with COVID and you know, the world of mm-hmm. shelfware is, is gone. People aren't going to buy 3000 licenses of something unless they know they need 3000, right? They're like, all right, now procurement and sourcing are trying to figure all that stuff out. So it makes it even harder. Um, to do all of these, those things. So I think it's a very interesting, uh, space that you're really focused on. Um, and makes a ton of sense, uh, to yeah. get deals done, which by the way, can apply if you're selling a deal at like a 25 K ASP, you may say like, <laughs> I got to go through the same levels of, yep. you know, slip security, legal infosec procurement type approvals 
as you know, somebody else who's doing a 500 K deal. And it's, it's yeah. crazy because it all comes down to the number of contacts as opposed to like the size of the contract. Yeah. That came up last quarter and I just, the size of my deal was, you know, a decent size, but I remember when they walked me through the entire approval process and then this is a multi-billion dollar company. I said, you're telling me this purchase has to go to the CIO and they're like, yes, I was just like mind yeah. completely blown. But I think that's <laughs> the world, the world that we're living in, which to tie it back to some of the things that we're focused on, you know, being a salesperson is getting harder and harder, being the internal champion is being harder and harder. But one of the things, and I appreciate kind of giving that, that background to that led you to where you are today. Um, you know, we care about mental wellness, physical wellness, spiritual side, you know, what is for you, what has that meant to you and your, um, your life and your career? How's that progressed? How's that gone up? How's that gone down? Um, what does that mean to you and, building companies and starting in nonprofits, the, the overall thought process of being in the right state of mind. And if you've had any hardships or seen any of that, what, what does that, what does that mean to you? Yeah. So sales, sales and startups, both are pretty intense career fields that you choose to go in. And it wasn't until kind of burning out going through a lot of negative spirals that I started working with a therapist who introduced me to the spices framework and spices is a way to think about balance across all the different dimensions of both your um, life, but also, you know, the self that you bring into your career or your work life. And it stands for spiritual, physical, intellectual, creative, emotional, and social. And all of us are operating across those different dimensions and there will be seasons when we over-invest or over-index on specific um, kind of pieces of that. So, for example, I may be real hyped about a particular design project that I just keep going down the rabbit hole in because it's allowing me to express the creativity. All of us have something inside of us. Where even if you would say, well, I'm not an artist, I'm not painting, there's a creative side to you. And if you don't allow time and freedom and space to express that creativity, you'll start to see dip in your energy levels, more of a negative mood and attitude, but you can also go too far to a point where I would be staying up real late. Cause I just couldn't unlock myself from this creative mode. I wanted to like perfect this design and I, my sleep schedule would get all out of whack. I would be working on Figma concepts in my mind while I'm trying to go to sleep. And so physically, I'd just be thrown totally out of whack. I'd get real out of balance, wake up the next morning, um, or I would neglect time with friends or family on the social you know, element. Yeah. And so that was one of the tools that I picked up early on to say, oh, got it. In the short term, I can go real deep on one of these elements, but that means that I'm drawing from or decreasing balance in another area, which is actually not going to allow me to show up well in the different ways that I want to over the long term of my career. And, you know, just kind of a learning point from uh, not being very intentional and not being very aware of that balance early in my career. I love that because I've never heard the spices thing before. No, I like that a lot. Um, but that we were just talking to someone actually and talking about the whole just being aware Right. I think that's just a resounding thing of being aware and that that across all the facets of your life, your work, your family, just being more aware can just not to say cure everything, but help potentially prevent the bottling up of of things that come with the world of, of being in sales and starting a company and all those certain things. Um, the sooner you can be aware and, and acknowledge 
things aren't going in the right direction or to your point, like spending too much time in this area um, is most important. Um, and not everyone has that avenue or that path or not everyone has gone through some sort of hardship to acknowledge they were going down that wrong path. But I think that's just very resounding of being aware of and acknowledging all those certain areas that's really, really important and critical in sales and starting a company and leading a team, um, mm-hmm. whatever that might be. Yeah, right on. I mean, pract- at a practical level, you know, to your point, not everybody has somebody who will keep them honest, maybe a mentor or even somebody like in their personal life who will be like, hey, I notice you're a little out of balance this week. What's going on? So like a very practical way, if you're like, mm, I don't know if I have somebody like that, if you just write out the acronym every single morning, spices, and then write down one thing that would contribute to balance in that area. And then just check back like, hey, did I do this, you know, day by day? And it's just kind of a self accountability tool. It's keep it super simple, super attainable, like physical could be I'm going to take a 20 minute walk in the sunshine today. Great. There's your one thing. Keep going down the list. I like that a lot. And there are certain times I've always had, again, whether it's family, friends, mentors in my life that I'm always bouncing ideas off of. And I feel like are outlets for me, but it's every once in a while I'll come across again, friend or colleague, and they don't have that. I'm like, why would you not talk to this person about this decision you're making or whatnot? And for me, and sometimes it's hard for me to conceptualize that because I've just always had that. But I think that's just the Mm. perfect suggestion because there's also the turn that there's a lot of people that don't want to feel vulnerable and don't feel comfortable putting themselves in that position uh, with certain people. But I think that's an easy and simple way to kind of put everything out there and help to correct. Cause it's like, you can also analysis paralysis. You can do your topic habits and have every little checklist of things. And like, sometimes that's mm-hmm. good, but that's also not wide for everyone. I think this is the perfect middle ground of not everyone's going to have the outlets. Not everyone's going to be so determined to, to go down the path of having the atomic habits and a million little things to get done versus let's simplify it. Let's write it down. I'm thinking about it. Here's the, mm-hmm again, little goals yeah. and little wins for me, um, across all these different areas. Yeah. It reminds me of the, uh, the Matthew McConaughey, some, uh, some speeches given where he's talking about, you know, putting it all out there, checks and green balances. Light. Yeah. Green, green lights. <laughs> uh, but he, yeah, he's like, you know, I, I analyze everything kind of like that where it's like career, family, you know, health, spiritual, whatever. And then you just kind of take a look at it and go, okay, well I'm crushing it in my career, but you know, my, my relationships are in the black, so I gotta I gotta figure out what's you know what's going on there, and just kind of adjusting things and, and looking at them holistically like that. But like you say, like make, keep it simple into these you know these basic topics, and then assess where where are you uh, putting too much time, and then leaving you know mm-hmm. another area out. Yeah, well, I mean that's a good point because like my atomic habits list, if I was just to write a list of things that I want to do in order to build up good habits, good process, it's going to skew season by season into one of those buckets. And that's part of like, by nature, I tend to be, I tend to ruminate on certain things. It's very hard for me to unlock from a certain like idea or mental track. And so I need those different buckets or different categories because by default, I won't choose balance, but I'm so grateful when I do find balance after I am more intentional about it. So I can, I can always tell when my kind of spices lifts list falls off because it starts to look very homogenous in my own list. Do you find it helps you stay more present? Cause that's something I'd say I struggle with myself is like when I'm doing something being right there and not mine's thinking about this deal or that, or this, I mean, you find it helps with that. Yeah. 
It does. And I'll connect presence to just a concept of like agency. I have agency over what I choose to spend time on, how I choose my life to turn out like. It's very easy to feel like you're a victim to your calendar. So for example, it's like, hey, over the next two days, I have 12 hours of conversations on the calendar. And I made that choice, even though I know I am going to be totally spent and exhausted afterwards. And I'm like, oh, okay, didn't have to. Like I could choose to schedule things in a little differently to create space for a midday workout and whatnot. And it's just a good reminder to come back to like, okay, I can choose to write down under physical in the framework, you know, one midday workout each week, choose it. Most people, you know, there'll be seasons where, you know, it's, it's more intense and you have to work through something, but by and large, it's just a good reminder of like bringing me back into present awareness that I have some agency over what happens um, throughout, you know, each week. Interesting. Did you, sorry, did you say you do that on a daily basis or weekly basis or kind of just depends? Yeah. In my best form, I do it on a daily basis. Um, yeah. and more at minimum weekly, but I, I try to make it a daily practice. So outside of the, I'd say more, you know, mental psychology side, what, what on the more of the physical, like uh, workouts and nutrition, is there something you sort of follow there that you have found works well for you? Yeah. So I, I started going kind of deep into endurance sports years ago. And so I just, I, I went, everything that wraps around endurance sports, nutrition is tightly integrated with physical training. Um, you are always going through some type of periodized training cycle, which means that you are matching your nutrition to the type of activity that you're doing and physically, but it also kind of scratched the intellectual itch. And that's why I gravitated toward kind of endurance sports. Cause I was like, I like the, you know, some of the science that goes, um, into this. So that, uh, and by endurance sports more specifically started out doing a lot of triathlon kind of moved into more, um, <clears throat> ultra running over time. So those are kind of the two genres, if you will, um, that I've gone deep into. That's pretty crazy. The, the ultra started following like, like Nick bear and obviously Goggins, all these guys that are doing 50, hundred mile races, Cam Haynes. Yeah. That's, I, there's like this upper echelon of the Goggins, Haynes, see the Goggins <laughs> picture yeah. behind yeah. you. So don't put me in Stay that on. camp. Put no, me you're like, already there. Yeah. You're there. Yeah. <laughs> so you ran a hundred miles this morning. Congrats. You're, you're yeah. up there with Goggins. <laughs> no, no. I was, um, I sit somewhere in between the marathoner and the Goggins, <laughs> exactly. more, more toward the marathoner of the, <laughs> the world. <clears throat> yeah. I don't know how they, how they do that, but that's, that's impressive. And I feel like at that point it's more mental, you know, than physical. Yeah. You know, I was, I was never go up first year of high school. I was four foot 11, 98 pounds. Right. So I was, I was never like a physical specimen. And what I realized is, oh, you get into kind of this endurance thing. It really isn't up to genetics or athletic prowess. It comes down to, and like, if you look at some of the, you know, kind of real successful endurance athletes, not all of them would you peg as an athlete. You would be like, so do you, do you teach science classes at the local middle school? You know, and it, <laughs> yeah. it is because it is, it is mental after you cross a certain threshold, the rest of it is just up to, um, habits, training cycles, relying on that and kind of the, the mental grit. And I, 
we, you know, if you listen to Joe Rogan plenty, obviously he's talking about jujitsu all the time. I think the same thing goes into that. The people, he always jokes to say in this day and age, you know, you're walking to someone down the street back in the day, you'd be like, oh, you know, I could kick that guy's ass. But now with the amount of people that have gone through the process of learning jujitsu and they might not look like they're in shape, they might not look like anything and they can be the exact person that, that doesn't. I think, uh, there's, there's some connections between, whether it's endurance sports or even like a jujitsu that there's a mental side of it. There's a physical, but it, you can overcome, you don't have to be the perfect specimen, but it's the mm-hmm. putting in the process and the practice and the training and, and the health side of it that can make you a top competitor. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the other kind of piece that goes alongside of that approach to training, if you will, to become a competitor that most people wouldn't suspect. There's this quote from Muhammad Ali which I love, they're asking him about kind of his routine. How many sit-ups do you do to prepare, you know, for a fight? And his kind of point was most people count in their workouts. I don't start counting until it really hurts. And then those repetitions Mm -hmm. or those, you know, reps count. And it's kind of the same type thing. Like for example, there's a training tactic in triathlon called bricks, where you go from a bike to run and you count your miles running only after you've done a long bike so that your legs are tired, they're spent, and then you start counting up the miles because that's the whole sport, right? As you're training your body to run and operate on fatigued. And when you have depleted yourself, then you can start counting the miles. So that's kind of the idea there. So are are you more, or have you experimented with running, you know, on carbs and, or being like fat adapted? Have you played around with those those two worlds, because mm-hmm. I know some some of the endurance athletes are going the fat adapted route, and you know some are just doing traditional carbs. I'm always curious about about that if you've kind of played around with both fuel sources. Yeah. So I, I subscribe to kind of the philosophy that Joe Friel is the name of the coach that he popularized in the triathlon world called periodized training, which means that your balance of macros, your fats, proteins, carbs should vary based on your training cycle. So early in the season, you're more of a base season. You're doing a lot of long, low intensity training. And that is where you want a very heavy fat diet that skews a little bit more keto, if you will, not in Mm -hmm. full ketosis, but 60 to 70% of what you're taking in your macronutrients are fats. And as you begin to peak and you get closer toward race, you begin to mix in more high intensity, short intervals inside of the workout. And you're beginning to fuel yourself with more carbs, kind of fast burning fuels. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that you don't lose kind of the second principle around this with, which is nutrient timing right before and after a workout. So let's say, um, let's say 60% of your diet now is carbs but you're taking in the majority of that 60% of your daily intake right around before and after the workout to prime your body before and then to recover. And then the rest is when you're consuming more of your proteins and your fats throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's perfect there because especially post-workout, all that's, you know, shuttling right, right into your muscles, you know, through glycogen. So that's kind of, exactly. if, if you man- manipulate the timing of things and, you can do it kind of pre and post. That's the best way. That's that's what I used to tell people. If you're going to have a cheat day or a bunch of uh, carbs, do it right after some kind of intense workout. Cause mm-hmm. it's more than likely not going to get stored as fat, but you know, you got, you got your best shot there, but just that, just the idea of, of metabolic flexibility and having the ability to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, burn fat when you need to, but also 
burn carbs when you need to. I got to ask, what's the longest you've ever run? Uh, 45 miles. Um, so there's a, there's a, basically a trail that runs from my house all the way up through downtown Denver called the Cherry Creek Trail um, that's out here. So if you run it end to end, um, it's 45 miles. That's how I, that's how I kind of got into ultra running there. Um, so I, I did a, a race Ironman Boulder right before kind of the world shut down with COVID and there wasn't really like any organized races going on. So I was just running on the trail. Um, I'd go out and run, you know, to get outside and whatnot. And then I was like, you know, there's no like organized races going on. Let me just make my own. I'm running on this trail every day. Would be kind of cool to, you know, kind of do the full thing. Nice. And then I looked it yeah. up and I was like, all right, you know, I think I could do that. And then, um, that's how I got into it. That's awesome. I think I've, I've done only the half, but it's, it's impressive to hear people do go the full marathon or again, you hear all the, like the, all the ultras that just baffles me, honestly. Um, how long did that take? So it took me 10 hours. Dang. I, I, um, kind of blew up pretty early on. I, for whatever reason, I had this date in my mind and I was like, this is the date that I'm going to do it. And that day turned out to be about 92 degrees, 80% humidity. And we were on air quality alerts from the forest fires that were going on. And so I, by like, um, mile 10, I was like, oh, this is going to be a long day. But mentally I was already like, today's the day keep going. So I, I definitely kind of tailed off on the back half, um, of the, of the run there. Didn't, didn't do quite my goal time, but Hey, I got it done and I finished and I was happy with that. Yeah. It's impressive. 10 hours of running. That's, that's a lot. I love that. Yeah. Now back to kind of the, the fluent side, I'm just curious sort of how, how exactly, you know, this, I guess how, how the, how the buyer would sort of take this and run with it as opposed to what we're typically seeing with, you know, sending marketing decks. And, and I totally agree with that where it's like, it's very markety and they're probably just going to scrap it anyways. Cause it's not very relevant to them, but how exactly does this kind of create it more for the buyer to be selling it internally? Yeah. So what you're kind of picking up is that, um, what you're producing is written materials to guide your champion's message when you're not in the room with yeah. them. And the kind of two typical approaches is either one, I'll send you a bunch of marketing created template decks that talk a lot about our product. Doesn't look or sound at all like you does, doesn't really go deep into what you would want to say to your team, but it's easy, right? It's fast. Mm -hmm. Now, the second option is, well, I can custom write up and build something for you that looks and feels like your internal language focuses on the problem statements, for example, that we might be creating together, but it takes forever. So I can only do that for a fraction of our accounts. So the basic thesis behind the product is converting your buyer's own words to create the content for a business case that you then share and create alongside your champion so that one, they're more likely to use it, matches the type of message that they're excited and confident in sharing internally. And two, the sales rep doesn't have to build that from scratch time and time again for each account. Interesting. I, I love that idea because that that is always an area where we tr we'll, we'll say, Hey, can we get in the room to help pitch this? And it's always like, you know, usually like, Nope, not really. It's, it's all, it's all internal meetings and maybe you get some kind of executive alignment call, but there, there, yeah, there's an aspect where you lose control and you just, you hope you have a good champion that can challenge things. Cause you, you know, the times when you have, you know, I guess your quote champion who 
is really just the buyer is you can, they're afraid to challenge status quo or they have a boss. That's, that's a dick that you can just know is going to run all over them. So what in it? Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Well, I was just going to say, and sometimes like you may have a champion, you know, who's the opposite, but it's like, look, I got five minutes inside of my one-on-one agenda that is two weeks from now, I got to grab their attention and get them willing to come to a meeting with you first. Like help me make the most of those five minutes of airtime I know that I'll get, right? And there are definitely scenarios, especially if you're trying to get the CIO or the CTO to engage in the conversation. It's like, you got to be pretty on point and pretty sharp with what it is you want to communicate. And you want it to be, like you said in their own words, like we've gone through certain iterations where we have building out the business cases and roadmaps. And it's always typically very clear that it's built out by vendor and like sometimes you might get some good influence back, but you want the champion themselves to feel as good pitching it as we should about our own solutions. Right. And I think that's sometimes where the gap is when they get thrown mm-hmm. in the room and they get tossed out a ROI or business case that we built. And then it's a little bit of like, Oh yeah. Um, I need to go back to the company <laughs> and ask them this question versus you want them to feel so confident where it's in their own words and own acronyms and own whatever to where it's. Yeah hopefully it looks exactly like they built it and you're know, building it hopefully with, with us and they just feel confident because it always goes back to using this example all the time. Unfortunately, when deals sometimes die where, all right, everyone's sitting in the room mm-hmm. who's sticking up for this. And I've had deals sometimes because of org changes and whatnot, where you come to find out after the fact, essentially no one stood up. Right. Yeah. And, and you have something like this where in that scenario, specifically the champion that we had moved to a different part of the company. So unfortunately he, he wasn't there, but you almost want something like this to where, all right, that next person, even if it's last minute, you haven't fully built them out as a champion, give them something that then they're going to still be able to feel confident in being able to stand up and, and back something up um, yeah. uh, in their own words. And, you know, helps hopefully win the deal. Yeah, that's right. A piece of the product that we built into this, which was a bit of a controversial practice at first is to, you know, the earlier point around like most people, we'll look at this and be like, Oh, a vendor wrote this is we would strip out all of the company's branding and only use the prospects branding. So their font, their colors, their logo. And so if you looked Mm. at it, you would have no idea who built it, but for this company, like it looks like an internal document, it's camouflaged to say, Oh, this was built by our team so that when it does go up to an executive, they're like, okay, you know, this, it doesn't send up that resistance of like, okay, outside vendor, and the reason why I mention that is oftentimes sales reps will conflate a decision to change and address a, a problem with the decision to buy a product. Those are two very yeah. different decisions. <clears throat> and you got to nail the first to say, okay, now you're at a point where you would consider a specific pro- uh, product because you're convinced that this problem is a big deal. You need to do something. You need to do something now. This is the way in which you should go about it okay, you're the partner for us to implement this, this approach that we're already sold on. Yeah. And I think as well, you being the trusted advisor and putting yourself in their shoes and knowing your full-time job is not evaluating software, but my full-time job <laughs> is selling it. So I should, you know, you shouldn't have to do all this work, creating a deck, customizing it yourself. In my opinion, mm-hmm. we should do as much as we can to you know enable you and empower you. And if you can build it and, and it looks like, it comes from them. That's, that's even better too, because they have their day job in addition to evaluating all these different vendors and solutions. And, and I think with some of the things I was talking about earlier, right? Like not with every 
software you sell, you wake up in the morning like, I'm selling QA and testing software. Yeah, <laughs> right. But you, you always find the other opportunities to to be excited. And I think that's where it's like, for me, I'm a relationship builder. So how can I build the best relationship? How can I build that strong champion? And it's always the end goal, right? It's how do I make Nate get that promotion, get that bonus at the end of the year? And I think this all leads into that, right? To where it's like mm-hmm. becoming true partnership makes it easier and that's the thing you can get excited about like yes i'm excited i want to sell software but if i can build this and do this to where nothing better than whether it's that five let's use that five minute example they have that Mm -hmm. five minute time with the cio in two weeks and then you get the call right afterwards and it's just like it worked you get that call it's like that hit home that is the best feeling you know Uh, like you feel so much more comfortable and confident and that's like, all right, there's still typically probably steps after that, but that's always the best when you get that call after a good internal meeting where you weren't there. And I think now you're building out something that's making it easier for that to be rinse and repeated and, and put in, like you said, their own words and their format to make it more comfortable for them. Cause I, me selling into it, not everyone I'm working with is type a and, and, and an extrovert. So sometimes that can be even more of a challenge. So you want to just give them the confidence level to be presenting something like this. And I think you can make it easy. It's great. Um, so uh, that's where I see, at least for myself being like, this is how I can use to continue to build that strong relationship I have and make them feel comfortable to stand up in the room where they might not have done that previously. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. You are transferring a whole set of skills that you train in as a seller that would are so helpful for somebody internally, but they just don't go through all the training and the disciplines that you do as a seller. So teaching somebody how to communicate and advocate, advocate for something internally to get their point of view across, to get others buy-in and excitement, like pe- people like a champion, will they'll remember that experience and they'll translate that to other pieces of their work life. It's always always a way that you could leave somebody better off even if you don't get a payoff on the deal you can leave somebody better off for the process that you run with them well and that happens too you know at the beginning of a sales cycle sometimes it's understanding or to that person when you're still maybe trying to figure out who your champion is it's have you ever purchased software before right sometimes it's yes you're like all right makes me feel a little bit more comfortable and sometimes it's like no but and then you're like all right well this might take a little bit of work but if you're now putting the tools i have the tools and then put it in their place to make it easier for them. Now they're going to remember. I've got another mentor of mine who always says, you know, at the end of the day, we're selling software. We're, we're, we're want our customers to be happy. But at the end of the day, you're building your own brand, right? Cause it's very rare for any of us to stay at the same company. I think the average sales or rep is at a company for what, two and a half years. Um, hmm. you're going on to all these other places and he always reiterates, he's like, Hey, 90% of every commission check I've ever made came from about 20 companies because he built that brand around himself. But to that point, it's like you, as you're building this internal champion and they get promoted and move up and it might be at that same company, move elsewhere, wherever you go next is Sean, Nate and Matt, like they're going to want to buy from that person again um, for everything that you've built around yourself and that partnership and that, you know, your own Mm -hmm. internal brand and you've made it easier for them. So I see this as again, as just that catalyst to helping you build your own internal brand. Um, and making everyone right. more successful. Yeah. Yeah. There's a phrase for that that I love. Josh Wagner calls it building a pipeline for life. That pipeline can follow you place to place to place. I like that a lot. Whoopsie. Uh, so, so, Nate, in terms of, you know, for the listeners, as we kind of wrap up here that want to test this out, where can they find you? How can they kind of get in on, on Fluent to help their 
their deals? Yeah, best place to find us is if you check out fluent.io. Um, one, I'd go check out the blog I write every single week and a lot of the practices and things that we've been talking about. You'll find frameworks, guides that you can use right away. And then two, while you're there, if you want to check out the product, um, feel free to um, grab some time. You can sign up and it's it's me and our developers and my technical co-founder right now. So if you're like, hey, I want to check out the product, want to talk to somebody, it's me that you'll you'll be talking with and be excited Sweet. to meet anybody who's listening. I love that. It's been great. I, I'm going to be honest. I've From the spices thing to, to what you, you're building, developing, um, I'm excited about all the stuff you're doing. I love when I just kind of have some good stuff as takeaways with our guests. So, Nate, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Nate. Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for having me on. This is the one podcast I've done where I get to blend so many of my favorite topics <laughs> yeah. into into one conversation from psychology, wellness, to triathlon, to sales and building companies. It's been awesome. So thanks for having me. Appreciate awesome. it, Nate. Um, well, you have a good rest of your day, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Optimize Sales with your hosts, Matt and Sean. We hope you enjoyed today's show and we look forward to bringing you more health and wellness tactics to make you the best sales rep or sales leader possible. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please follow us on Instagram at Optimize Sales, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review on all major podcast distros. As always, you can head over to OptimizeSalesShow.com to check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode. And remember, optimize your mind and body, optimize your pipeline.